Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. On today's show, we have two stories about Native American boarding schools, one taking a look at their dark past, and another about how these schools have changed since then. They had a lot of things happen to them where they cut their hair and they were told not to speak their language. But to us, it was just uh, another option for high school. Also, Fremont County is sending kids who've committed crimes into a classroom instead of a jail. I've been working with juvenile justice my whole adult career, and I know that that punitive style does not work. And we'll talk to legislators about the possible need to raise taxes to fix budget shortfalls, and hear a story about a doctor's quest to solve the mystery of oil field worker deaths. That's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Wyoming lawmakers are addressing a revenue shortfall that could reach $600 million by 2018 by making some budget cuts and using some of the nearly $2 billion they have in savings. But things could get worse very soon, especially since the state is losing a major source of income for school construction. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that lawmakers will have to find a way to make up for declining revenue. Usually revenue means taxes. The state almost raised taxes in 1999 when the state was facing a budget shortfall. And then overnight, the coal bed methane boom exploded and Wyoming was on easy street. Senate Majority Leader Eli Bebout of Riverton remembers those discussions well. He got into the legislature around the time of the bust in the 1980s and remembers years of budget cuts. He will oppose tax increases in the short term. But what about five years from now? If I had my crystal ball... You know, I, I, I don't know. I just can't really answer that. I, you know, before everybody said we got to have tax increases. Remember in the, in the bust in the 80s and the 90s, and we hung firm and said no, and, and we were right. Uh, right now I'm saying no, but things change. What scares me about this time is coal. He's a longtime energy developer, and so he knows oil and gas prices go up and down. But he says the so-called war on coal has devastated Wyoming, especially the loss of millions of dollars in coal leases that the state used for school construction. It could be a shortfall of between 400 and $700 million. Green River Senator John Hastert is the Democrat on the Senate Appropriations Committee. He says we are a ways from needing to raise taxes. I don't think we need to do that right at this point, and I don't know... And, and I don't know that we'll need to do it uh, next biennium because we'll still have plenty of resources. Um, so I think that's um, uh, for quite a ways down the road. Hastert says that if the legislature had expanded Medicaid, it could have avoided some of the budget cuts the state is facing this year. That's because expansion would have given the state millions in federal dollars. Sitting in his office, several miles away from where the legislature is meeting, Wyoming Governor Matt Mead says he's been disappointed with the budget lawmakers have put together. Like Hastert, Mead says Medicaid expansion would have helped the state. He also has no interest in raising any taxes right now, even for school buildings. 
I don't see having the largest relative rainy day fund, spending on some of the things we're funding, and raising taxes, uh, most of which would be paid by the industries that are hurting the most now, which is our mineral industries. One lawmaker, though, has no problem taxing the energy industry. If you create a hole that's the size of $400 million, the only industry that can pull you out is minerals. You can't tax 400,000 people enough to get that kind of a pickup. That's Senate President Phil Nicholas of Laramie. He's been worried about how the state will fund school construction for many months. Nicholas went to the legislature's revenue committee and urged them to come up with a plan to pay for schools. He argues that if the state starts now, it will eventually raise enough money to handle the funding deficit for school buildings and overall education spending. If you begin to marshal your problem early enough, you could go out and put a modest tax of, say, raise $50 million a year, and you'd never fall into that hole. House Appropriations Chairman Steve Harshman says future education funding keeps him awake at night. We're going to spend every dime of savings we have on the education side, which is about $650 million, that are basically excess federal mineral royalties. We're going to spend every dime of it over the next three years. Standing in a hallway outside the Senate chambers is longtime legislative observer Bill Schilling of the Wyoming Business Alliance. He says the legislature has a legitimate problem. We're in this bind, and the revenues are not keeping pace with expenditures. And this precipitous drop of revenue, no one forecasted that. No one did. Schilling says if you want budget cuts, lawmakers will have to focus on the main drivers of the budget, education, health care, and family services, three areas that many people rely on and are difficult places to cut. Schilling knows that taxes are very unpopular in Wyoming, but... We don't pay for the services that we receive. The bang for our buck in terms of services is extraordinary in Wyoming. House Revenue Committee Chairman Mike Madden says his committee will spend the summer looking at how to acquire more money. A temporary five mil or four mil property tax is a possibility. Others have talked about a half a percent increase in the excise and use tax. Uh, we've even talked a little bit about uh, wind generation generation tax, and these are all logical uh, things to look at first. But House Minority Leader Mary Throne would like the committee to consider something else. In Wyoming's efforts to diversify, it has brought in some companies that don't pay nearly what other industries do. You know, the data centers, the distribution centers, they, they have a pretty low um, tax rate. They don't actually generate a lot of tax revenue over time. And so we need to look at the whole structure in, because energy might not come back this time. And what are we going to do? Throne says the worry is becoming a commodity producing wasteland on the east side of the state with a couple of nice tourist spots in the northwest. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck in Cheyenne. The oil field is notoriously dangerous, but even there, it's unusual for a healthy 21-year-old to drop dead on an oil well pad. Yet that's exactly what happened to Dustin Bergsing. 
Inside Energy's Emily Guerin has the story of the journalist who teamed up with a doctor to help solve the mystery of Dustin's death and that of at least eight other oil workers. Mike Sorahan remembers the first thing he thought when he heard about Dustin Bergsing. A 21-year-old kid just sort of dies out in the middle of nowhere and nothing happens. Mike is a reporter for Energy Wire, an online business publication, and he came across Dustin's death while researching oil field fatalities. Dustin was a young bull rider from Montana. One night in January 2012, he climbed to the catwalk on top of a crude oil storage tank on an oil well pad. His job was to open the hatch on top and drop a rope inside to measure the level of oil. Just after midnight, a coworker found him dead, slumped on the catwalk. You're kind of thinking, well, you know, obviously this is an oil and gas site. It would seem that it had something to do with his job. At first, people suspected Dustin had died from inhaling a gas called hydrogen sulfide, or H2S. It's a known oil field killer that is deadly in just a few minutes. But Dustin's autopsy showed no H2S in his system. Instead, his blood contained hydrocarbons like benzene and butane, the same stuff that's in natural gas. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, did an investigation and found no safety violations, so no fine for Dustin's company. At that point, few people knew it was possible to die just standing on an oil well pad from inhaling gas. And I just remember reading through it and thinking, you know, that's it. Mike is one of those people who doesn't like not knowing things. So when he couldn't understand what had killed Dustin and why no one was held accountable, he couldn't let it go. So he reached out to Dr. Bob Harrison. I'm a clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I specialize in occupational and environmental medicine. Mike told him about Dustin's case. He was interested. It just didn't add up to me. And so then we just sort of both start digging. He's saying, well, is there any other cases? And so I start trying to dig them up myself. While Mike was doing that, Bob had been looking over Dustin's autopsy. He was still trying to figure out how petroleum gases had gotten into his blood. And he didn't believe the rumors that Dustin had stuck his head inside the oil tank to get high. Frankly, there are a lot easier ways to get high than going out in your long johns at 1.30 in the morning in North Dakota to gauge an oil tank. Bob suspected Dustin had passed out when he opened the hatch on the oil tank, was engulfed by a cloud of petroleum gas, and then stopped breathing. You know, it was one of those aha moments that I have every so often in my career as a doctor treating patients with toxic chemical exposures. Meanwhile, reporter Mike Sorahan had found another young oil worker who had collapsed on top of an oil tank back in 2010. Trent Vigas. This man died in almost exactly the same circumstances as Dustin Bergsing, and it was like deja vu all over again. At that point, Bob contacted the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health and said, hey, I think there's a pattern here. They began to dig, too. It's not very common that you identify a, you know, a new occupational health issue that's potentially fatal. That's epidemiologist Kyla Retzer with NIOSH. After they identified two more men who died while working alone near crude oil tanks, they put out a series of alerts warning industry about the hazards of petroleum gases. It's something that we wanted to act on quickly. It's sort of like seeing incidents of infectious disease. NIOSH ended up finding nine oil workers who died from inhaling petroleum gases since 2010. 
For researchers like Bob Harrison, the frustrating thing is that people are still being exposed to these gases. I never want to hear about another worker dead on top of an oil and gas tank. Some oil companies are already using technology to accurately measure crude oil without exposing workers to deadly gases. Why isn't it more common? That's in our next story. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. When we come back, we'll hear about Native American boarding schools, past and present. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. For more than a century, the remains of hundreds of kids from the nation's tribes have been buried in a grave at the country's first Indian boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Many likely died of disease, but for others, the causes are still unknown. Tens of thousands of Native kids were sent to Carlisle and other boarding schools, often against their will. Physical and mental abuse inflicted on them there has had lasting impacts on tribal communities. But Wyoming's northern Arapaho tribe is now calling on a law that allows tribes to reclaim their ancestors' remains in hopes that a reburial of the children who died there could offer some healing. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. It's standing room only in a large conference room in Riverton. Up front, people mill around a display of old photographs of Arapaho children sent to Carlisle Boarding School in the late 1880s. One is a before and after photo of a boy in braids, wearing feathers and jewelry. A second, same boy, now in a starched suit and short Ivy League haircut. Just to get started. Euphna Soldierwolf is the director of the Northern Arapaho Tribal Historic Preservation Office. The boy in the photo, is one of her relatives. She says two years ago, the tribe wrote to the U.S. Army, which now runs a college on the old Carlisle land, asking them to release their ancestors' remains. She reads a letter they sent back to her, telling her no, they wouldn't dig up their ancestors' remains. The conditions of the graves are fragile, and movement would be extremely difficult and would be of concern for families or other inhabitants of the cemetery. The Arapaho and Sioux have good reason for leading the charge on this, Their children were some of the first to be sent to Carlisle in 1879. That's when U.S. Army Captain Richard Henry Pratt first started the school in hopes of assimilating the tribes into white culture. We were still being hunted down at that time. That's Russell Eagle Bear, the Rosebud Sioux Historical Preservation Director. 1878, 1879, that's only like a few years, three years after uh, the Bell of Little Bighorn. He says at that time, the U.S. government was working hard to subdue the Plains tribes and that those first boarding school children weren't just students. They were basically hostages taken from all the leadership, Spotted Tail and White Thunder and Red Cloud. And, uh, you know, once you take your kids, you have control over the parents. Carlisle historian Barbara Landis agrees that boarding schools were used to control tribes the government considered hostile. She says Pratt's philosophy was to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. The cutting of the hair is a sign of mourning. So when the barber came in, there was this collective wail that came out from the barracks of these children who were suddenly mourning because there was the loss of 
something. And it was the laugh of their culture. Landis says soon 24 off-reservation boarding schools sprang up in hopes of wiping out Native culture. No traditional religion, clothes, or language was allowed in the schools. Hundreds more boarding schools on reservations, some run by the government, others by churches, opened too. Many continued to practice this forced assimilation into the 1980s. Arapaho and Shoshone member Betty Friday remembers it well. She went to an Episcopal Indian boarding school in South Dakota in the 1950s. There, nuns hit her with sticks, and she saw a priest sexually assault one of her dorm mates. I remember for some reason I woke up in the middle of the night and I could hear her crying. And then I saw, uh, and I couldn't figure out why he was there. That's all right, go back to sleep, you two. I, when I think about it now, I think, oh my God, how many, how many other girls and boys? Friday says she believes her older brother was abused there too. All through his life, he was troubled. Up to the end, he was very angry. And it finally dawned on me one day, this is what happened to him. He was probably molested at the boarding school. Some offenses committed by church officials in boarding schools included pretty horrific things. Christine Dindisi McCleave is with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Murder by beating, poisoning, hangings, uh, starvation, strangulation, and medical experimentation. She says there's now evidence that those traumas have reverberated through generations and disrupted family structures. There's a recent scientific discovery of epigenetic transfer, which explains how our ancestors' life experience can give us predispositions towards anxiety or resilience based on their experiences by altering our own DNA. She says her organization is working to heal such historical trauma. That's one one thing that we're working on is trying to get the U.S. government to acknowledge their role and, and the policy and, and the damage that was done. But tribes um, can also work towards healing for their communities by participating in this process. Yuvna Soldierwolf says for the U.S. Army to go through the effort of exhuming the tribe's ancestors would definitely be healing. We're actually getting an apology or somebody acknowledging what had happened then wasn't right. And we're sorry, here's your kids back, we're so sorry, you know. But it's always fighting for that apology. And it shouldn't be like that, it shouldn't be so hard. After the meeting, Soldier Wolf mailed off another request to the Army and says, this time she won't take no for an answer. She says it's time for the tribe to receive some closure by putting their ancestors to rest. She says the tribe recently developed a new ceremony specifically to be used in the reburial of lost ancestors. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. As you just heard, a century ago, children were stolen from their parents and taken to federal boarding schools, where they were abused and stripped of their tribal cultures. In the past several decades, most of those schools were closed or handed over to tribes as the U.S. shifted away from its policy of forced assimilation. But the Bureau of Indian Education still runs four off-reservation boarding schools around the country. They look much different today. And as Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, they remain a popular destination for students from Wyoming's Wind River Reservation. 
In his senior year at Wyoming Indian High School, Tim O'Neill was struggling. Uh, I was just like, you know, drinking, partying, trying to be cool. It messed with my schoolwork. My whole class schedule, all seven classes I was failing, and there was no way I could make up the uh, grades, so I just asked my parents if I would be able to go to a boarding school. He ended up at Chamawa Indian School in Salem, Oregon. It's been there since 1880 and is one of the four remaining boarding high schools run by the Bureau of Indian Education. My experience was good there. They uh, allowed me to catch up on some schoolwork and when I caught up, they f I found out I was top of the class. O'Neill went from dropout to valedictorian for Chamawa's class of 09. In his year there, he says he learned to take care of himself. The best thing was meeting all the new people, other Native Americans, and making lifelong friends. I really liked it. It opened up a new world for me. Rebecca Bell also had a positive experience at Chamawa back in the 80s. I got to see the ocean and got to do a lot of things that the kids back here you know, didn't even get to do yet. And Bell's husband enjoyed his time at South Dakota's Flandreau Boarding School in the 70s. Bell says what they experienced was much different than what she's heard of her grandmother's time at boarding school. They had a lot of things happen to them where they cut their hair and they were told not to speak their language. But to us, it was just uh, another option for high school. Bell and her husband value that option enough to send three of their four children off to boarding schools. She says the horrors that older generations experienced at these schools never really figured into her decision-making, mostly because she didn't hear much about it. They didn't really talk about it then, but they do talk about it now. Back in the 1920s, a report concluded that children at Native American boarding schools were malnourished, abused, and poorly educated. The boarding school era began under a military philosophy that was seriously steeped in genocide. Sergio Maldonado is the state liaison for the Northern Arapaho tribe. He says that the assimilationist policy of kill the Indian, save the man, continued at boarding schools until the 70s. More negative reports and the civil rights era led to their gradual shutdown. Maldonado says the schools still standing today take a different approach. Uh, maintaining one's cultural identity. So it's a, it's a complete philosophical change. You're, you're talking about polar opposites here. He says today's remaining boarding schools are an option for Native students looking for independence or a change of scenery. But that doesn't mean he's glad they exist. Glad they exist? No, because it is simply the marginalizing of children from tribal communities and families. No, I'm not glad at all. They should have been done away with 50, 70 years ago, maybe even more. But we can't change history. It would be inappropriate to try to remedy some horrible mistakes from the past by eliminating an institution now, which is a hopeful place. Trip Deppner is the principal of Sherman Indian High School in Riverside, California, another one of the remaining boarding schools many Wyoming kids go to. Things have changed a lot at Sherman in Deppner's lifetime. He says a Navajo woman who went there in the 60s and was forbidden from speaking her language now teaches that language at Sherman. And I believe that, that, that those efforts, you know, over the past 35, 40 years have helped transform the nature of what Bureau of Indian Education schools tried to do, which is to celebrate the culture of the students, of their families, of their ancestors. Yeah, they have a, a beading class and pottery ceramic class. 
they have a, a basket weaving class and they have a, a Navajo language class. Scotty Nez is a high schooler from Wind River who spent his first two years at Sherman. And freshman Alyssa Whiteplume spent just one semester there. At Sherman, we would do projects on how far back they made the school and how they were treated there and how they got taken away from their homes. Tim O'Neill from Chamawa says knowing that history and its impact on Native people today is important, but it shouldn't discourage students from attending boarding schools. Compared to what boarding schools were in the past, you know, they changed a lot from killing the Indian and saving the man. It's a lot different than that these days. O'Neill says if the boarding schools still exist when his one-year-old son comes of age, he'd certainly allow him to attend. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up on the show, we'll hear about oil field worker deaths and hear an interview from this year's big conference on the energy industry. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. Continuing low oil prices have left tens of thousands of oil workers out of a job. Now a growing number of them are turning to the courts, saying they weren't paid fairly when times were good. Inside Energy's Dan Boyce has the story. Bruce Freest asks himself, Would I do it again? <laughs> would he have moved from Minnesota to start a small trucking company during the heat of North Dakota's oil boom? knowing what he knows now. I don't know if I would. I really don't. It was hard on me. It was hard on my kids. His marriage fell apart. A couple of years ago, his trucks were subcontracted to haul oil by a larger trucking company called Montana Midwest. Then that company went bankrupt, still owing Freest a lot. I had a little over $200,000 out on the books that I did not get paid for. Oil field bankruptcies of companies large and small have been surging as prices remain at their lowest levels in a decade or more. But a bankruptcy is not the only way a worker can be left underpaid. 28-year-old oil driller Cody Armejo lives with his parents in Riverton, Wyoming. He's basically been out of work for a year. He's having ramen noodles for lunch. I should have saved a lot more. I should not be in debt. I should have be debt-free and have like thousands in the bank, but I don't, you know. Then, one day last winter, Armejo gets this letter about a class action lawsuit saying precision drilling didn't pay him enough overtime when he worked for them. Yeah, I was way surprised. I was like, what the heck? What's going on? I had no idea. I honestly had no idea. He was eventually awarded $6,000. As oil prices started dropping a year and a half ago, an inside energy analysis shows these lawsuits exploded. Armejo worked in Colorado. In that state last year, there were nine times as many wage suits against oil and gas companies as there were in 2010. In Texas, the biggest oil state, nearly 10 times as many lawsuits. 
Federal records show oil and gas companies are among the top violators of wage laws, particularly by not paying overtime. When you look at the work that the workers are doing, you're talking about 24-hour shifts. You're talking Tess about Castilleja works with the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. She says oil workers' long hours put their employers at risk for a lot of wage violations if they're not paying close attention. Castilleja's office was seeing enough problems with this a couple of years ago. They decided to specifically investigate the oil and gas industry in some parts of the country. Since then, the office has recovered about $40 million in unpaid wages. We have found cases where workers were not even paid the minimum wage because they're working so many hours. So the idea that they're being highly compensated, in some cases, they're not. The biggest case her team has settled by far was against oil field services company Halliburton this past summer. In just this one case, they found Halliburton owed about 1,000 workers a total of $18 million. The company released a statement to Inside Energy saying they, quote, worked earnestly and cooperatively with the Department of Labor to equitably resolve the situation. It's the way the industry operates. Brian Gonzalez is a Colorado lawyer who represents workers in these wage cases. And they see what their competitors are doing. They just do the same thing. And no one stops to say, well, hey, this isn't really compliant with the law. Compliant, usually in the way they are classifying workers as being eligible for overtime or not. He believes for a lot of oil companies, this misclassification is a conscious business decision. The chance of getting caught is low, and he thinks in some cases... Even if they get sued, which is a big if, they'll pay a fraction of what they saved. We tried for months to get an oil company or an industry representative to speak to us for this story. No luck. Finally, though, one manager agreed to an interview. I did owe him some money. I owed him like 3500 bucks. Bruce Friest. That same trucker from North Dakota. When he was left short that $200,000 after his contractor's bankruptcy, he couldn't pay his workers. Eventually, all were paid except one. I had every intention of paying him. That worker stole one of Freese's trucks, holding it for ransom. Freese got the truck back, but he wasn't too keen on paying the guy after that. A year goes by, he gets a call from the state saying a wage claim has been filed against him. With penalties and interest. They now claim that I owe him $14,000, but I don't have even anywhere close to $14,000, so I don't know where these people think I'm going to come up with the money. At least in some of these cases, the employers not paying their workers might be victims too. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. The energy industry is in turmoil. Coal and oil prices are way down. There are big changes to environmental regulations in the works, and more and more renewables are coming online. Some of the biggest players in the industry met at a conference in Houston this week to weigh in on what it all means. Inside Energy reporter Jordan Wirfs-Brock was at IHS Sarah Week. She spoke to Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce from the conference about the biggest issues on the table for the energy industry. So, Jordan, 
Last year, Zero Week was in April. Oil prices at the time had been going down for about six months. And the focus then was on innovation, survival, winners and losers. How was the conference different this year? Well, since last year, oil prices have only continued to fall, and they've gone far lower than people expected, and they've stayed low for far longer. So everyone here wants to know what's going to happen in the future. Are prices going to stay this way, or are they going to start ticking back up sometime soon? And so one of the sort of most anticipated speakers this week was the Saudi oil minister, Ali al-Naimi. And people really wanted to know whether he was going to give some kind of clue as to whether they were going to cut production, which would help drive prices back up. And bottom line is he said they're not going to cut production. Um, Don't expect that to happen from any of the other major oil producing countries. So essentially, companies are going to have to just survive. No one really wanted to go out on a limb and say when prices are going to come back up, but the general sort of discussion was that they will kind of creep up, but not to where they were. We're not going to be seeing $100 a barrel for oil anytime soon. So I guess in addition to the oil and gas industry players, you know, I I know the the conference always features some major policymakers. Uh, Gina McCarthy was there, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. What did she talk about? Well, everyone was expecting her to talk about the Clean Power Plan, which is the Obama administration's uh, new rules for cutting carbon emissions in the near future. And she did not disappoint. A few weeks ago, the Supreme Court issued a stay on the ruling, and McCarthy had a a nice little um, description of her reaction to that moment. I think my head hit the table, only because it was unexpected, but within 10 minutes, I was back in action. Her bottom line and basic message was that the Clean Power Plan is here to stay. The EPA is not going to back down on this. Uh, People may fight it. Many states are suing over this, but essentially all of this is not going to slow down our transition to a lower carbon economy. And did McCarthy address any other regulations that are coming down the line? Yeah, a big topic of discussion this week was actually methane leaks. So uh, a recent Aliso Canyon leak in Southern California kind of brought this issue to the forefront. And so a lot of people have been paying attention on methane that can leak from all parts of the natural gas system, from um, from the well pad, um, from pipelines, um, all the way to um, you know people's homes and, and the sort of end of the line of the infrastructure. And, and McCarthy did address this. She mentioned how recently the EPA updated the way it actually calculates methane emissions and how we come up with our inventory for the U.S. And essentially, she said that for years we've been underestimating this issue. Here's another bite from McCarthy. The new information shows that methane emissions from existing sources in the oil and gas sector are substantially higher than we previously understood. Last year, they announced some proposed regulations. Those are going to be finalized later this year. And the Bureau of Land Management is also tackling this issue. So so stay tuned for more on methane. And so there was another uh, key administration player there, the energy secretary, Ernest Moniz. What was his agenda? What did he talk about? Well, he talked about um, a wide range of issues, and and he's always a pretty entertaining guy. So uh, he actually provided one of the funniest moments of the conference. Uh, When IHS Chair Daniel Juergen was interviewing him, he asked him about the recent idea President Obama put forward for a $10 a barrel fee on oil. Can you explain to us where the thinking is on this $10 per barrel fee on oil? 
A very articulate uh, answer. <laughs> okay. You mean ten dollars and twenty-five cents? <laughs> right. Uh, well, look, I'm just going to say that the uh, uh, this is going to be the classic answering a different question. The, uh... So, uh, where do, where we went from there is that Moniz actually brought up that we have a huge hairy problem, which is how do we pay for our aging, crumbling transportation infrastructure? It's going to be expensive. We don't have the money to do it. And he said, you know, you try to come up with a better solution. So that's what he talked about in terms of that um, $10 a barrel fee on uh, on oil. Definitely something that I imagine was not greeted with enthusiasm in that room. Um, you know, the Energy Department has come out with a number of reports and studies recently about the future of energy in this country and the policy to guide that future. Um, did Moniz have anything to say about that? Well, one of the most exciting and disruptive technologies that he talked about was actually electric vehicles and, and self-driving cars. During the press conference, it actually came out that it seems like he's he's pretty bullish on the idea of self-driving cars and that, you know, they're coming and they're coming sooner than we think. And, and they will fundamentally change the way that we use energy for transportation. And also, um, in addition to Moniz, the, the CTO of Tesla Motors was there, J.B. Straubel, and he was very optimistic. Basically, he said that in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see millions of electric vehicles on the road. One of the last big speakers of the conference, I understand, was from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the agency that oversees the grid. What did FERC Chairman Norman Bay focus on in his presentation? He talked a lot about energy storage, and this was something that all of the people presenting on utilities in the power sector really emphasized as the future. Um, You know, we've known for a while that energy storage at the utility scale is going to be necessary to bring on renewables um, on a very large scale across the electric grid. But the issue has always been cost, and these technologies have not been commercially viable yet. But what Norman Bay said is that costs are dropping, and they're dropping faster than people had uh, expected them to. And so here's a, here's a bite from Norman Bay talking about um, what that means. Some analysts have predicted that costs will decline 50% over the next five years to the point where, in some markets, energy storage systems can be cost competitive. Essentially, his point is that in the next few years, instead of building new power plants, things like natural gas-fired power plants to meet peak demand, it will actually be economically viable to instead put in storage systems that can accommodate renewables. So that that is huge. Um, essentially, um, the combination of storage systems and renewables will make that cost competitive with more traditional power plants. Lots to keep an eye on in 2016, it sounds like. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thanks, Stephanie. That was Inside Energy reporter Jordan Wirfs Brock speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce from IHS Sarah Week, one of the country's biggest energy conferences that took place this week in Houston. wrap up today's show, we'll learn about how Fremont County is sending kids to class instead of jail. This is Open Spaces. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. About a decade ago, Wyoming jailed kids who committed crimes at higher rates than almost anywhere else in the country. In the last few years, the state has taken steps to reduce the number of juveniles in detention. A program in Fremont County has helped lead that effort. Since 2013, many kids there that would have gone to jail now go to a program called the Wyo10 Day Reporting Center. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports. I'm happiest when I'm with my brother playing basketball. I'm happiest when I'm riding my dirt bike. In a classroom at a Riverton Activity Center, kids are sitting in a connection circle. They toss a ball around, and whoever has it has got to say what makes them happiest. Um, I'm happiest when I'm around my family. The idea is that if two kids are happy when they're doing the same thing, they make a connection. While it feels like something at an alternative high school, it's actually an alternative to juvenile detention. Five of the seven kids here today probably would have spent time in detention if this program didn't exist, according to the program director. For Letitia Goodwin, it was either this or jail. I got in a fight and used drugs. Goodwin says before she started coming to this program a few months ago, she hadn't gone to school for half a year. But she says being around the people here has got her motivated to tackle schoolwork again. I got my two test and science and reading. Now I just have to work on writing, math, and social studies, and then I could possibly get my GED. I like this program a lot. 17-year-old Coy Bennett is only at the day center for a week. He was suspended from his high school, and because he was already on probation, he says the judge told him to come here instead of just staying home. Bennett says that was a good call. If I were sitting at home, even if I had the work with me, I would not work on it. I'd be playing Xbox, but here I'm keeping up on it. The Wyo10 Day Reporting Center opened in 2013 and serves kids from 6th to 12th grade. It's part of a broader initiative to cut down on juvenile detention that a number of Wyoming counties have taken on in the last few years. Programs like this have helped the state cut its juvenile detention rate by half since 2007. But the Day Reporting Center probably wouldn't have opened at all if something else hadn't happened right before. The juvenile jail shut down. Fremont County Undersheriff Ryan Lee says the county detention center has about 190 beds. And up until a few years ago, the juvenile wing took up 20 of those. On average, we were only holding about three juveniles. Lee says the county decided to close the juvenile wing after it had started paying extra to send adult inmates to neighboring county detention centers. We were spending upwards of $300,000 a year to uh, incarcerate people out of county just so we could keep the juvenile detention facility open for three people. The Day Reporting Center costs about $260,000 a year of federal, state, and county money to operate, says Director Melinda Cox. The program has served 110 kids in the last three years. It allows juveniles to stay on track with their schoolwork and can help them avoid becoming part of the 20% of Wyoming youth who don't finish high school. Cox says her kids are now much more likely to do things like pass the high school equivalency test, or HiSET. We just had two kids graduate with their HiSET. Um, and one is attending college, and he was a dropout. Cox says the day reporting center doesn't need to feel like a jail to help these kids get back on track. I've been working with juvenile justice my whole adult career, and I know that that punitive style does not work. Cox says there should be a juvenile detention center in Fremont County for kids who commit offenses too serious for the day center, but there's no plan to build one anytime soon. That absence has hit the Native American community particularly hard. 
while kids off the reservation in Fremont County who need to be detained are taken to Rock Springs, two and a half hours away. The tribes have an arrangement to take detained kids to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Busby, Montana. Which is another five, maybe seven hours. You don't want to be able to do that. You want to be able to have them here. Clarence Thomas is the director of Eastern Shoshone Juvenile Services. He says that the Eastern Shoshone youth have been doing well in the day reporting program. He says he doesn't want to see a large new juvenile jail so much as a smaller detention center where kids who are inebriated can sober up. I am happiest when I am riding my horse. I'm happiest when I'm with my older brother. Back at the YO10 Day Reporting Center, Coy Bennett says he's glad he was able to come here and not go to jail. He knows firsthand what that's like. It was pretty boring in prison. Like, there wasn't much to do. Like, you literally sat there all day. This is a lot nicer than going to jail. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Let's hear from our author reading series, Spoken Words. Sam Western lives in Sheridan and has won the Wyoming Literary Fellowship for Fiction twice. He spent more than 14 years writing and refining his latest novel, Canyons, which explores themes of revenge and atonement. This excerpt takes place at an elk camp in the Bighorn Mountains. Ward mustered enough gumption to heat a bucket of water on the kitchen stove. They took off their shirts and with dishwashing soap, silently scrubbed the elk blood off their hands and arms, their skin stinging from the nicks and cuts. Eric saw Ward's eyes quickly run over his body with concern. I'm a little underweight, aren't I? You look like one of those cows in Russell's painting, waiting for a Chinook. You ever seen that? Yeah, in one of Gwen's art books. Ward grinned, but the concern never left his eyes. Eric pulled off the medicine pouch and handed it to him, but Ward shook it. Why don't you wear it until we get back to the house? It seems like it does you good. Eric immediately fell asleep as he slid down into his sleeping bag. He woke up two hours later, knees pounding, his clean T-shirt soaked, and the medicine pouch wrapped around his neck. He sat up and was immediately cold. The temperature had dropped dramatically since they'd sunk down into their beds so tired they could barely have the energy to eat a bowl of Lorraine's chili. Eric got up and restoked the fading bed of coals. He shook out two ibuprofen and swallowed them with cold water straight from the pump. He stood beside the stove and looked at the lump of Ward in his bed. Unlike previous nights, Ward had not moved much, or at least Eric didn't think he had. Was he all right? Was that the way the deal worked? The man he wanted dead manages to live and yet dies by the whims of fate? Eric crept across the cold floor and peered at Ward's shape. It rose and fell in a slow rhythm. Eric scuttled back to the stove, opened the door, and stared at the fire. How many times had he turned away? How many times had he retreated from the participation on the grounds that it was not worth his time or that it would invariably have sour results. 
How many times had he turned from his first wife, Candace? She wanted children from the day they were married. She even tricked him once, saying she forgot to take the pill for a few weeks. He didn't even know she was pregnant until she miscarried. Now she and her husband had four girls. How often had he turned away from Allison, who ached for his approval, and for a man who was demonstratively affectionate? By the light of the open stove door, he rummaged in his duffel until he found his long underwear tops and bottoms. He stripped off his damp T-shirt, still smelling the elk's musty scent on his skin and the moisture of the pouch. A shivering, dank chill ran through his upper body, but he instantly regained warmth after donning the long underwear and a fleece jacket. He felt as if he were plugged into an electric current. He went to the window. Stars were out, and yet it looked like it was still snowing. How could one see the heavens and snowflakes at the same time? Was it always either or? The urge to be out in the starlight and the snow seized him, immediately following by a list of reasons why he should not indulge this notion. But he found his bivy sack, pad, and polar fleece hat. He grabbed a sleeping bag and, tugging on his fleece boots, stepped out into the cold. A half-open sky, the marquee of stars unobstructed, competed with the banks of clouds dropping fat, white flakes. Beneath a pine where the snow barely hid the needles, he flopped his gear down and arranged himself accordingly, using his boots as a pillow. Sliding down in the bag and bivy sack, he felt himself more insect than human, as if he were entering a chrysalis. Through the branches, the celestial theater scuttled across the sky in a slow-moving conveyor belt. For the first time in his life, he gave himself permission to really look at the Milky Way. No angry soliloquies gained the stage. No voice in his head tried to take over. No compressor blew intention like fluffy loose insulation being forced into the airspace of an attic. No worry about the potential cold or servicing debt or his mother's shortcomings or avenging or solving anything. He saw himself for what he was, a man nearly half a century old, as Graham would say, alternatively getting his face bathed in a million-year-old starlight filtered through a thin veil of pine boughs, then, the next minute, seeing black clouds and feeling snowflakes melt on his cheeks. He had no vision. It wouldn't have trusted one if he had. A door slammed. Eric woke and lifted his head. Ward stood on the porch, looking at him. He waved. Eric waved back. He was ready for anything. That's Sam Western, reading from his new novel, Canyons. You can hear more author readings at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just look for Spoken Words. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of our program or you want to hear a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. You can listen to the show whenever you like when you sign up for our podcast, either on our website or on iTunes. We'd appreciate it if you'd both rate and comment on the podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of our Wyoming Public Radio Facebook page. And for breaking news and other information, you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.